Welcome to Common Ground, a podcast encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Six months ago, the Taliban took control of Afghanistan with a swiftness that shocked the world. But where do things stand on the semi-anniversary? Is there a future in Afghanistan for democracy, education, and civil rights, especially for girls and women? We tackle those questions and more with Afghanistan's last education minister before the takeover and the Afghanistan country director of the Konrad Adenauer Foundation. It hasn't been easy for them, nor for Shugufa Bayat Haidari. The Taliban is the Taliban the 20 years before. They are the same. Their mind is the same. They didn't change their mind. The, there is a lot of rules for women that they cannot go to their works. How it will be possible for us during of this time, for us if I were in Kabul, to do climbing? There is no sport for right now for the girls. Even those girls are coming in the street or those women are coming in the street and they are raising their voice about women rights, the human rights. And then the Taliban and the night they are going to their house and taking them and killing them. You know, they are trying to kill all the active peoples and also take down the voice of those people are active. They are just trying to show uh, that we change, but they are not change. If they change, right now the school for the girls was open. If they change, right now there was one office was open by a leading of one woman. All the NGO right now are closed in Afghanistan. Even the people are dying because of the starvation. The 21-year-old who fled Kabul three months ago was featured last May in our town hall in Afghanistan that we hosted with the German Marshall Fund of the United States. At the time, Haidari had big plans, including a training course in Alaska and eventually an expedition to Mount Everest. These days, her focus is on learning German and the complex transit system in Berlin. She lives here with her husband and her 12-year-old autistic sister who escaped with them. Haidari tells me her life is completely different than the one she envisioned, even a week before the Taliban descended upon Kabul. Uh, in the 10th of uh, August, we had a big party. We were busy with dancing, and no one imaged that five days later, the life of everybody will destroyed. Uh, yeah, it's still it's a shock for me, believe me, when I am checking the news, when I want to think about six months before, it's still a shock for me, and I cannot believe how it happened. A half-world away, Rangina Hamidi shares Haidari's anguish. I knew that things were changing. Um, the situation on the ground in Afghanistan was not pretty, to say the least. Uh, but I did not know that it was going to be that fast and that quick. I don't think any of us predicted that it would happen so fast. Hamidi is a professor of practice at Arizona State University's Thunderbird School of Global Management. She was Afghanistan's education minister when the Taliban took over on August 15th. I reached her in Phoenix via Zoom. You know, it's very difficult. I was in a talk to a high school classroom um, and some friend who is a teacher who always invites me once a, once a year to talk to his classroom. Uh, they're in Boston, Massachusetts. And one of the students asked, are you still thinking of going back to Afghanistan one day? 
And my response to him was every second of my life that I have spent in America now since late August when I arrived back, in my head, at least mentally, I'm thinking of how and what and when will the opportunity come to go back. So I hope that that sums up the kind of emotional state that I'm in. I've invested and devoted 20 years of my adult career life to Afghanistan, its women, its children, and its future. And it's so difficult to accept the fact that I would just forget about the 20 years of investment. It's not fair to me personally. It's not fair to me professionally. It's not fair to my country. My father sacrificed himself. He's buried in Afghanistan. He was killed and assassinated in the past 20 years. And turning my back on Afghanistan completely would mean that I give in to whatever is dictated by others on us. And so I'm living here. I'm breathing. I'm working. I'm eating. I'm, you know, I, I'm surviving. Physically, I look fine. Uh, but emotionally, uh, internally, that is not visible to the world. I'm extremely broken and I'm still trying to figure out how to best cope with and deal with uh, this broken self, knowing that I don't want to give up the fight. Hamidi says she hopes Afghans, especially women, keep standing up for their rights, although she fears growing divisions threaten to derail the resistance. Some of the same women who were fighting for women's rights um, in Kabul, in Afghanistan, past 20 years, many, many of us are now living in the diaspora. Uh, some of us, of course, worked in various sectors, from government to civil society to private sector. But now, unfortunately, this plague of ethnicity, of language, of uh, affiliations with a variety of other political groups based on ethnicities um, is really... You know, I'm seeing it and witnessing it that it it is dividing us. We're already a minority in the sense of being women now living in the diaspora all over the world, uh, trying to, you know, raise our voice against elements in the country who are trying to, you know, step on all the success of the past 20 years, whatever, whatever little success we may have had. If we find ourselves divided over ethnicity lines and religious lines and linguistic lines, I do see that as a threat to our future. The international community, interestingly, also feeds into the politics of exclusion because oftentimes I have found that people are invited to speak to the image of what the invited organization wants to hear rather than hearing the whole complex picture of Afghanistan because Afghanistan as a nation never was a monolithic nation, and it never will be. We're a diverse nation with diversity in thought, in actions, in cultures, and the society. And to think that all Afghans must think alike and propose the same solutions to the variety of problems that we have uh, is a mistake in the first place. That's the mistake the international community made in the past 20 years. And unfortunately, I'm seeing that that's a similar mistake they're following even now with so many Afghans in the diaspora. She says she sometimes feels like a target. I happen to be born to a Pashtun family. My father and my mother are from Kandahar, and they were ethnically Pashtuns. And so, therefore, I am a Pashtun. My ethnicity today, unfortunately, is seen not as a threat, 
But it seems like there's something faulty with having that background because the world sees or the world or, or Afghanistan has defined Taliban to be only Pashtuns. I'm not denying Taliban's roots to the Pashtun ethnicity. But as a Pashtun, I want to tell the world that just because you're a Pashtun does not mean you're a Talib, that there's a variety of opinions and mindsets and value sets that people um, adhere to. And, uh, you know, the Pashtuns is a, is a large uh, ethnic group uh, globally, particularly in that region of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And um, what I'm hearing, and, and I feel this, is that my ethnicity, my background is automatically defined as either a Talib or a Talib sympathizer. And that is not right. It is not fair. And the world needs to start listening to this voice that a Pashtun does not necessarily automatically equal a Talib or a Talib sympathizer. Hamidi and I first met 13 years ago in Kandahar, where she ran a business marketing the embroidery of local Afghan women. She shuns the political spotlight and says when she agreed to join then-President Ashraf Ghani's cabinet, it's because she wanted to make a difference. I asked her if she still thinks of herself as the education minister. I'm not saying that I'm still the minister because officially I'm nobody anymore in the government of Afghanistan. But the fact that I joined the position of ministry on the sole purpose of wanting to do something different that normally politicians do or don't do, rather, I was crazy passionate about education and knew the importance of that sector and its impact on our country, particularly on the future generations. And I knew a little bit about education. So when I went and served at the ministry, I saw it not as a position of power, but I saw it as a crazy, passionate person wanting to bring about change. And if it means to be engaged in conversations, in dialogues, in pushing for better policy, um, even from here, yes, I'm active. Yes, I'm still involved. Um, I do question the mechanism in which UNICEF is addressing paying the teachers across the country, and then uh, particularly the conversation around providing aid to areas or providing salaries and education assistance to areas where girls will be allowed to go to school and potentially not allowing, you know, not supporting areas where girls will not be allowed to go to school. This debate or this um, has aroused that internal battle that I had as minister when I discovered a lot of discrepancy uh, within the Ministry of Education of all its action of the past 20 years from 2001 until 2021. The Ministry of Education was never fair in the amount of services, the type of you know, financial allocation that was dispersed across the country. There were discrepancies on record now that the world needs to be uh, looking into before deciding how we want to support the education sector in Afghanistan. Because if we don't, my fear is that we're only going to perpetuate the nasty cycles of the past 20 years, and that is not going to be beneficial for the people of Afghanistan, for the children of Afghanistan, and uh, for the future that we all have to deal with as a globe. What do you see happening to education now, six months after the takeover? Education has always, at least in the past four decades of our history, education has been used as a tool for conflict. Um, there's always this division of 
you know, any political party or any political government coming into place, the first thing that they do is work on the curriculum and change it. And so use education as a tool to continue the conflict that the society is in. And the way I'm looking at, you know, this conversation globally around the issue of education, if it is used as a tool against the Taliban who are now in control of the country, I see it again as a continuation of a source of conflict rather than unity, particularly as it entails girls' education. I would be very careful in how we frame the conversation and the resources and the support around education, because if education becomes a source of division again, I only see the suffering of millions of children and their future rather than trying to um, address a very political problem in place right now, which is a government that came in, not necessarily by force, but the grounds for their coming was kind of prepared for them three years before the fall. And the world needs to take that responsibility for it rather than blaming uh, the Afghan population and particularly the children of Afghanistan, uh, using the children of Afghanistan and their future as a tool to continue their ugly political division that they've always played. But the reality right now is that not many people are going to school, I mean, even boys. So do you as education minister and as a daughter of Afghanistan worry that basically all of that progress for women and girls is going to disappear? Of course, that's a fear. Of course. And that's why I'm still engaged in this conversation. And my mechanism of how I want to deal with this is to be strategic and not create uh, the grounds for the elements that are now in power to break all the foundation that we have helped build in the past 20 years. But to say that everything was great and all the girls were going to school in the past 20 years, that's a lie, too. And I'm I'm not shying away from, you know, stating that very uh, bluntly. Yes, there were pockets in major cities, Kabul in particular, Mazar-Sharif, Herat, perhaps even Kandahar, where the cities had a great number of girls going to school. But even then, if we look at the reality, there were more girls in attendance in schools up until about sixth or seventh grade as compared to those who actually graduated from 12th grade. So this access to education or girls' ability to complete 12 years of education was a major challenge of the past 20 years as well. And I'm not saying that that's an excuse to continue that. Uh, Of course, we need to fight against that. Of course, we need to figure out ways to not only enable the girls who did complete sixth grade and, and to continue finishing up to 12th grade, but also find mechanisms and ways of recruiting new girls across the country to be able to not only enroll them in school, but have them complete the 12 years of education. And I think it's possible if we are uh, smart enough to understand the complexities of the Afghan society, the sensitivities in various societies of how they view and how they address women's and girls' education, um, and work organically within the system to bring about that change. Hamidi says that's not been the case. And I'm hearing it from both sides. The international community is using girls' education as its tool to put pressure on the Taliban, potentially for recognition. And I've also heard from the Taliban side that they want to use girls' education as their leverage, as their you know, give and take uh, in this negotiation for being recognized. 
what hurts me as a daughter of Afghanistan is why is my presence, my my mindset, my future utilized by politicians, men at the end of it, men politicians globally and nationally to decide whether they're going to be recognized or not. I have the right to be educated. It is a God-given right. It is a human right. And the international community is responsible for making sure that we provide a good, plain, apolitical education to enable minds to grow, because that's really what the main purpose of education is. But if we're doing this politically to politicize and get our political agendas across through education, then I think we're doing a disservice to the daughters of Afghanistan, uh, probably not so much different than Taliban banning them versus the rest of the world uh, pushing an agenda that might not be organically accepted in Afghanistan. You and I are old enough to remember what life was like when the Taliban were in charge of Afghanistan before 2001. Are you seeing a difference in Taliban attitudes this time around when it comes to female education? I would like to say yes. However, I don't have the proof. I'm not on the ground to know firsthand whether the Taliban have changed or not. One realization is that if the Taliban have not changed, the world has changed. The Afghan population has changed. There is this new incredible reality that we are all faced with, which is called media and add to that social media. So the Taliban, whether they like it or not, whether they want to or not, they know that they cannot escape from this new reality of the globe. And particularly now that they know a little bit of uh, world politics better because there's just more access to information major conferences and talks and events that happen halfway across the world uh, become available at the tip of a finger on their uh, smartphones. I know for sure that technology has a huge impact on how they want to deal with the world. Uh, But in terms of their mentality, I think they're just like any other group uh, in the world. There's always going to be people who will be extremists and ideologies And then those who are a bit more moderate and then a bit more liberal. Um, And I kind of feel that that's probably happening with the Taliban, too. And now that they have access to media, we are seeing it through their narration of addressing the society where they have difference of opinions as well. And it's coming out. It's not just that monolithic, you know, in the 90s, we didn't have access to a variety of different people. So you only got to hear the final decisions of the leaders. Whereas now you see that there's a variety of different opinions, uh, different levels. And I'm hoping and pray that that variety can help uh, advocate for different policies than they had in the 1990s. The Taliban in late January announced it was reopening public universities for women students in six of Afghanistan's 34 provinces. Eleanor Tsaino, who is the Southwest Asia director at the Konrad Adenauer Foundation, says while Taliban guidance is emerging on female education, it's disjointed. With regard to education, it really differs from city to city and province to province. So basically now the Taliban leadership has acknowledged um, female education um, to a certain age. So usually they mention 14th of years, which is also in accordance with local customs, because even in the provinces before, girls were usually uh, took from school and kept home when they reached the age of 14 or teenage age. Um, So this is the current uh, regulation, they said. 
And university, the public universities, for example, in Kabul, they are not closed, but there are no, no one is teaching because they have to work on the curriculum. And the private universities, yes, they are open. They want to show they are open, but from students that I know, they say, yes, there's maybe two students going to classes and the rest just stays home because they don't see any use in the moment to have anything. Everybody is staying at home waiting and seeing what's happening next. So when you talk about the two students, and I realize you're doing that anecdotally, is it women you are talking about or students in general? Well, this is in general. This is in general. But women are mostly um, in danger of being kept home and women are mostly afraid for their future, be it um, also when it comes to family law, but also when it comes to work and, um, and get education. So for them, the shift will be, of course, the largest. But we should also not forget about the men because the restrictions also apply to the men and they are equally worried about their own future and their own also for their job perspectives. That's the main core concern for most of the people now. It's how to get food, how to pay the rent and how to get a job in the future or some, some sort of income in the future. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear more from Sino and our other guest. Stay tuned. Democracy. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, the host of Common Ground. And I'm Dina El Sayed, the senior producer. Each week, we bring you a new lively discussion on a hard-hitting topic. If you want to learn more about our podcast, check out our website at commongroundberlin.com. The episodes are free to download, but they aren't free to create. Common Ground depends on grants as well as donations from listeners like you. So if you want to help us out, please click on the donate button at commongroundberlin.com. And thanks for listening. I'm Verena Hütter, host of The Big Ponder, the Goethe Institute's transatlantic podcast, bringing abstract concepts to life through personal radio essays. Every other week, our producers turn broad topics into captivating stories told from a U.S. and German perspective. You can find all episodes of The Big Ponder on our website, goethe.de, as well as on your favorite podcast apps. And discover the stories behind The Big Ponder on our radio show, Sounding the Big Pond. It is broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. We do look forward to connecting with you. Welcome back to Common Ground. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Next week marks the semi-anniversary of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, and we are discussing the impact it's had on democracy, education, and women's rights there. Just before the break, we heard from Eleanor Tsaino of the Konrad Adenauer Foundation. She was a panelist at the town hall on Afghanistan that I hosted with the German Marshall Fund last May. She was based in Kabul at the time and worked on projects related to building a democratic state and developing Afghanistan's economic system. 
For this interview, I reached Sino via Zoom in the Uzbek capital, Tashkent. I asked her whether she is able to work in Kabul these days, given Konrad Adenauer's memorandum of understanding was with the previous Afghan government. Unfortunately not, because we um, have evacuated all of our local staff. And um, I myself left Kabul on one week before the Taliban takeover. So basically our office, it's still in Kabul, but it's empty. And um, we don't know if we can ever resume and how we can resume any activities in Afghanistan. So currently we are completely on a wait and see policy and um, we have no clarity about the next months, what will happen. She says our foundation evacuated some 50 Afghans, which included current and former staff and their immediate family members. I asked her if anyone in the new Taliban government reached out to her. So far, they have not reached out to us um, individually. And the messages that they pass generally to the international community is that aid work and humanitarian assistance is very much welcome. but. Everything else which will be perceived as a domestic interference, and I would think that they also would consider our work as domestic interference, um, is highly critical for them. So I don't expect any too positive messages in the future. The only positive message that we got was from Kabul University, which is now led by Taliban. Um, They have passed through a partner a message to us that they would like to continue working with us. But of course, I think they will have their own conditions. And for us, it's completely unclear how and if we can continue with it. Are other NGOs and aid groups continuing to work in Kabul? Yes, all the German humanitarian organizations that I know, they are all open in Kabul. They still have their offices, not only in Kabul, but also all over the country in the various provinces. But the activities are restricted in the moment also because of the financial crisis, because international bank transactions are still closed due to the international sanctions. And so they work on a very limited basis, but they will keep their presence. They are very positive to keep their presence. Yes. How have civil rights and women's rights in Afghanistan changed over the past six months? It is a watershed change. And I don't see that in the near future, um, we will go back to the Western nation building or the, the Western achievements that we have seen. So in the moment, everybody is very much unclear about the future red lines and boundaries for media, for civil society, for women. But definitely there will be huge changes. For example, Afghanistan has been the most um, pluralistic country when it comes to uh, media freedom and pluralism of media. And media was reporting very free and very broad. And in the moment, they do mostly self-censorship because they have no clear guidance, no no clear regulations from the Taliban. Um, But definitely they stopped their music channels, they stopped their entertainment. But still, we have women um, reporters on TV, but they are very cautious. The same applies to civil society. So women usually stay at home voluntarily because they, they're just afraid. In some provinces, Taliban give clear um, regulations and restrictions. In some provinces or cities, they demand, for example, a woman to be accompanied by males. Um, or in Kabul, they only demanded from the international offices, they only demanded gender segregations in the offices. So they don't stop women to go to work. 
but we don't know what it means in the future, what will they do in the future. What are the key challenges or obstacles for Afghans that you see right now? For example, starvation. Yes, definitely. The core concern is, of course, it's a humanitarian crisis, which is in a really, really dire situation. So um, now it's, I think, over 90% of the people are below poverty uh, line and um, millions of people risk, be it starvation or undernutrition. So this is the most serious crisis and the, the most serious crisis we've seen in the last decades in, in the country. And that's a core concern for the people. And um, the only positive thing that I see in the moment is that the war is over, that the fighting is over, so that now people can travel mostly freely and also by road through the country, which was not possible before August. So this is one small improvement. But um, so in the past, people risk to die in attacks or in war actions. And today people risk just to starve to death. And that's, I mean, it's both a serious situation and um, people are really, really depressed. I mean, we know Afghanistan is not an easy assignment. I certainly know that from my time there. So I'm wondering, do you feel that all of the time you spent there, that you invested there, all of that time that your foundation and other civil society organizations invested there, was that wasted? Yes, of course. I mean, everybody is so disillusioned and so sad about what has happened. And um, yes, I'm also thinking about what, what will stay from our 20 years of engagement. And um, most of the achievements, unfortunately, I have to say, will get lost. And um, just to give you an example, I mean, today, the young generation in Afghanistan makes up um, half of the society. So 40% of the people are under 15 years of age. Um, so most of the people have not lived under the Taliban rule, and they know only the Taliban from stories. And they grew up in an environment which was politically free. I mean, they were used to... Um, political, open political debates of criticizing government to pluralistic uh, media landscapes. All of this is now in danger. And um, I don't know, the, the young generation now is also trying to flee the country. So all of the creatives and young people and the, the um, intellectual elite has left the country or is planning to leave the country. Um, and with them also, I think the achievements will mainly get lost. It's sad to say that, but I think we need to keep uh, realistic expectations on that. I asked Sino what she thought about the talks in late January that Norway held with the Taliban outside Oslo. I believe it was the right action to do that. Um, I personally believe that we have to keep conversations, keep the dialogue open with the Taliban leadership and accept um, the new realities because I think we cannot help the Afghan people if we ignore this, if we ignore the new Taliban leadership. So keeping this dialogue open is important to at least see if there can be some guarantees for minimum standards. But unfortunately, we didn't see a structured dialogue between civil society and the Taliban that was tried to, um, to get through in or to launch it in Oslo. So this was not as successful as some may have hoped for. But um, I think in the future, we need to keep the channels open because still it's unclear what is the um, leeway that we still have. But is the Taliban here to stay or are they a transition to something else in Afghanistan? 
This is also a very good question because I think it's not yet clear if the Taliban can hold on to power. In the moment, there is no domestic political force or opposition that can challenge the Taliban. The only um, challenge they have militarily is jihadist groups, which is ISKP, so Daesh and um, Islamic State and um, other jihadist groups. This is even a worse scenario if the jihadist groups would gain power. And um, so for the moment, I think Taliban is the new force that we have to somehow to work with, to accept. But in the future, it's unclear if they can hold on power because um, they have to keep um, the state running. They have to get some state revenues. And also they have to work on their own internal coherence. And that's also not clear because um, this movement, the Taliban movement is very diverse and um, the leadership also has to prove uh, that they can establish the long-aspired Islamic State as they promised. So I think they have lots of challenges. And in the moment, they are still tasting the victory. But also at a certain moment, they have to face realities as well. The former education minister, Rangina Hamidi, also doesn't foresee the Taliban leaving power anytime soon. There are governments, particularly in the region, that support and push uh, for the remaining of the Taliban. Uh, and they're trying everything they can in their power to maintain them. I think what the international community has a hard time uh, dealing with is how to deal with this new reality. The Afghan people themselves, those who are in the power externally, because most people who are in power are now outside, except for you know President Hamid Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah, who remain there. But it seems like their words are not really taken into consideration of the decisions either. But there are many, many layers of conversations around the world about what to do and how to go about doing business in Afghanistan with this new regime. So I hope it's just a transitional period, but the transitional period could turn into years uh, in worst case scenario. Uh, I was hoping, we were all praying and hoping, you know, after August and September, that this cannot last. It will only be at maximum three-month transition. And now it's turned into six months. And who's to say that the six months, God forbid, might not turn into six years, uh, just like last time. The Taliban, meanwhile, is demanding the creation of a joint body made up of its officials and international representatives to coordinate the disbursement of billions of dollars in desperately needed aid. But the UN has its own demands. It wants all aid workers, be they international and local, men or women, to be free to do their work. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and thanks for listening. Our senior producer is Dina El Sayed, our social media editor is Stefano Montali, and our intern is Abigail Meganson. Common Ground is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry of Economic Affairs and Energy. We are also proud partners with the German Marshall Fund of the United States, Goethe Institute, and Berlin Briefing. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. If you are on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com.